All right, well, turn to um, Matthew 16. Um, Pastor Peter was gracious enough to um, help me, or to let me finish this chapter. Um, uh, Next week, uh, Pastor Peter will uh, just embark on one of the most glorious, uh, interesting, just eye-opening chapters in Scripture, uh, the Transfiguration in chapter 17. Uh, So uh, if you're here this week, you will not want to miss next week. Please, please, please come next week. But um, let me give you a quick recap of what we talked about last week. Um, Last week we looked at Matthew 16 verses 21 through 23 and and we had come to a point in the ministry of Jesus where um, if you if you remember where when Jesus's ministry begins officially, as it were, uh, John the Baptist baptizes Jesus, and and this is is kind of the the opening of the earthly ministry of Christ. He's baptized. Jesus begins his ministry, and not too long from Matthew chapter sixteen, uh, we're gonna be come into the story of Jesus entering Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. And, and, and the week after that, he is crucified. And, and uh, that represents kind of the last chapter of Jesus' earthly ministry. So th- those are kind of the bookends. And when we looked at Matthew 16, we, we saw that Matthew 16 begins to... So it's like two chapters before that last chapter. There's a, there's a turning point in what Jesus is now going to do uh, just out of the, the the reality that he is not going to be on earth much longer with his disciples. So uh, even though there's going to continue to be some element to his public ministry, but as a whole, his public ministry is now going to start to decrease as Jesus increases his teachings specifically to his uh, inner core, to his inner group, to his disciples. There's some significant lessons that he wants to make sure they get. And um, uh, he takes them into the area of Caesarea Philippi. We looked at this uh, last week, this area north of the Sea of Galilee. So he kind of of wants to seclude himself uh, while he gives them uh, these teachings. And we saw... Um, as he begins to kind of give them details of his coming uh, death by crucifixion. Uh, We saw how one of his apostles, one of his disciples reacted. You'll recall he tells them, guys, um, God's plan for me, I have to go to Jerusalem, I have to suffer many things, and I have to be killed. Um, And one of his disciples, Peter, you'll remember, he kind of steps in and says, no, 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 don't do that, don't do that. And uh, we examined why that really was absolutely horrible advice. Uh, um, Peter was literally suggesting, he's becoming the antagonist to God's plan. Christ had to do that. If Christ followed Peter's advice, then he would not have provided an atoning sacrifice for all of us. So Jesus rebukes him sharply, you'll, you'll remember. And then where we pick up today, after he has this kind of one-on-one talk, then he's going to turn his attention to the rest of his disciples and say the following. So we're in Matthew chapter 16. We're going to start in verse 24. So after he's talked to Peter, after he's rebuked Peter, after he tells Peter this, for you are not setting your mind on things of God, but on the things of man, he shifts his attention to his disciples And he tells them in verse 24, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross 
and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Without a doubt, the words we just read represent quite possibly, if not one of the most important teachings on what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Or perhaps they are the most important teachings on this topic. The language of discipleship that Jesus uses here is simple to understand. It's it's not really complicated to to get, but it's pretty hard to listen to. When you read verse 24 again, and you don't need to open up a dictionary to to understand what Jesus is saying, right? I mean, it's pretty clear what he's trying to communicate to you. So it's simple to understand, but it's just hard to swallow. I'm like, man, this is... Really, Jesus? The expectations laid before us of what discipleship should look like are pretty clear. There's something Jesus demands of us. There's this kind of outline of how your life as a disciple of Jesus will look like. There's a script that you're to follow. But our willingness to fulfill these expectations is oftentimes confused and clouded. There's clarity in the call, but there's sometimes confusion in our response to the call. The outcome of discipleship has been determined. Um, It's interesting that he says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. So that's it. Your life is a life of following. It's been determined what it will look like. So the outcome of discipleship has been determined, but have we determined to be disciples? Perhaps if I could, if, if I could um, summarize this lesson in one phrase, it would be this. We are called to win by losing. The call of discipleship, the call that Christ places on the heart of His disciples is a call to win by losing. Look back at verse 24. He says, Then Jesus told His disciples. Just talked a little bit about that. He's going to be crucified uh, pretty pretty soon after this. And um, there's something very specific about this now. He turns to His disciples with the purpose of, of... broadening his reach of of just, okay, Jesus probably got the sense from his interaction with Peter that Peter was not the only one in that boat. That Peter was not the only one with some of these doubts or some of these misunderstandings of what it meant to follow Jesus. If Peter is thinking the things he was thinking, Jesus, don't don't go to the cross to die. Don't do that, Jesus. 
Peter's probably not the only one. So Jesus is going to take that kind of as a, as, a, as a trampoline to then now teach the rest of his disciples. And he tells them, if anyone would come after me. If anyone would come after me. What does that mean? It's interesting that he doesn't say, if you guys would come after me. It says, if anyone would come after me. There, there, there's, a, there's a widening of the reach of this teaching. There's a universal principle meant for everyone when they encounter this text. This text is not, is not, does not exclude the world and just include his disciples. What he is saying here in verse 24 and following is, is, is something not specific to the disciples. This is not a teaching for them that stayed with them and when they died it no longer applies. This is for anyone. So if you're here this morning and, and you, you, you believe yourself to be a follower of Jesus, if you have believed yourself to have surrendered your life to Jesus, if, if you believed yourself to be a Christian, you, you, you're following Christ, you fit in that word. You fit in these verses. This, this is your job description from now on. This is the script that Jesus has written for your life. If anyone would come after me. Jesus is, 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 is saying that you know, um, obeying him or following him is not just a privilege for an elite few. There isn't like this special religious class of, of people that, you know, they're the only ones that have access to Jesus. He's, not, he's also not saying that, that you know, um, following him is, is just reserved for a kind of a misguided bunch of like low, you know, poorly educated people. This is for everyone. There's no distinction. In other words, following Jesus looks a certain way for Everyone. Then he says, would, would come after me. So, so some translations render that verse as, as um, if anyone would set his will. And it's interesting, if you read Luke 14, verses 27 through 28, um, the gospel writer says, Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So it's not the first time Jesus has used his language. He uses it quite frequently, actually. But then he says, For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? If anyone would come after me, is, is Jesus' way of saying that no one casually stumbles into discipleship? Following Jesus is not something you drift towards. You know, um, there's typically things you drift towards. Um, you, you, you drift towards laziness. Uh, you drift towards uh, ineffectiveness. Uh, you drift towards um, um, sloth. You, you, you typically drift towards things um, that require little effort. That produce little that's typically what in, in our lives we drift towards. Discipleship is not something you drift toward. We, d- d- holiness is not something we drift towards. Uh, being more faithful to the Lord and growing in Christ-likeness is not something that we drift, that we casually just, hey, I'm not holier. What did I do? 
I have no idea. That typically doesn't happen in the Christian life. Discipleship requires determination. Discipleship requires determination. If anyone would come after me, he's, 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 he's making a statement that the, that the individuals that follow Jesus, that, that, that there's this determination, there's this resolve that must be embraced to be a disciple of Jesus. The, 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 uh, I guess third or fourth thing I could say is, what this tells us, what Jesus is trying to teach is that we are not allowed to create our own path to Jesus. So, not only is this principle universal, if anyone would follow me, so this is not just reserved for some or just the experience of others, but it requires determination. So, if, if you fit into the category of disciple of Jesus, this is for you, and it, it looks like determination, but what kind of determination? Is it up to you to determine what this following looks like? Is, is it up to you to say, okay, I'm determined to follow Jesus. Now, let me write down my script. Now, let me write down how I'm going to do it. And, and my determination will be girded by fulfilling the list of things that I've set out to fulfill. Well, unfortunately, if, if that is you, um, the very next phrase, uh, Jesus gives us a recipe for discipleship. Okay, so he's going to tell us what the ingredients you want to come follow me? This is what you're supposed to do. He says, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So if you're reading the Bible, I'm not making that stuff up, right? I mean, that's there. And, and, and this is Jesus saying it. So, so you know... We believe that the entire scripture is, is the word of God, that there are no more important passages than the others. But, but in a sense, when the Savior is speaking, the, 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 there's just a sense of clarity that's brought. So, what do those things mean? Let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Let's unpack um, the three of those. That first one, deny himself, that word um, means to refuse. So, that passage could be translated to, let him refuse himself. Well, how, how, how do you refuse yourself? Um, it could be translated to, let him refuse any association or companionship with himself. So, if you, anyone would come after me, let him refuse any association or companionship with himself. That's a, a possible rendering. Now, I know what you're probably thinking. You're probably thinking, well, that's, that's pretty hard. It's pretty hard to refuse companionship with myself because uh, I'm always around when I'm around, you know. It's like I can't, I can't avoid myself when I want to avoid myself because I happen to be in the same room with myself. Um, he, he's not talking about um, refusing to acknowledge uh, your existence, um, you know, uh, don't walk out of here thinking, you know, Pastor Ronald said, Jesus said, deny yourself. So to follow Jesus means to stop believing I am me. Um, you know, I have to stop believing that, that I'm denying myself. So that means I no longer believe that I am me. He's not saying that. In, in the biblical context, denying yourself means accepting your inability to help yourself spiritually. To deny yourself at its, at its most essential core means that you acknowledge that you can't.
cannot fix yourself, that you cannot help yourself, that you are not the means for life within yourself. You need someone to provide something for you. You need something or someone outside of you to give you what is most basic and most necessary. That's what it means to deny yourself. It means that you have to come to the point where you deny that you have the capacity or the willingness even to save yourself. Or, 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 or that... Or the belief that you on your own have the capacity to be what God wants you to be. You believe, I have the capacity within myself. God has a goal for me. God has a plan for me. God has a purpose for my life. And I can accomplish that. That's not denying yourself. Or frankly, even even more more, um, piercing... Denying yourself means that you have in yourself the recognition or you recognize within yourself that you have not, you do not have the ability for anything good at all. The Apostle Paul struggled with this in Romans chapter 7 where he said, the good I want to do, I can't. Wait, what? If, if, if there is a, a, a poster child for, for being spirit-filled and spirit-empowered is the Apostle Paul, right? There's probably no man on earth who has manifested the gifts of the Spirit like that man. No man. And here's that man saying, the things I want to do, the good things I want to do, I can't. There's some self-denial in that. There's a denying of yourself. What Jesus is trying to get us to learn is in order to come to Him... You must believe that there is nothing good you bring to the table for of salvation. If you remember in this same book, Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, the first beatitude, one of the first teachings of Jesus, and probably the most famous and largest sermon that he preached, he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Why? Because they're poor in spirit? No, they're blessed because for theirs is the kingdom of God. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? It means to recognize your, your, your utter reliance on something outside of yourself to even approach God. Um, I think it was... I'm not sure if it was Spurgeon, but one of these guys that we like to quote here said something to the matter of... <laughs> He said, the only thing I bring to salvation was a sin that made it necessary. Amen. See, that's poor in spirit. That's the recognition of self-denial. I'm not in the equation. And if I am in the equation, it's the bad part of the equation. To deny himself means accepting the reality that you can't please God by yourself. You, you, you need the assistance of someone else to do that. You can't redeem yourself. You can't be anything to speak of in front of God. God can't boast about you with his angels. He can't say, ah, oh, that Ronald dude, he's awesome because in himself, 
He's just achieved so much because, I mean, you know, I've rescued other people from 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 damnation, and uh, and I've had to clean up some some other jokers a whole lot. But that guy, you know, I just it just didn't clean up a whole lot. It just kind of you know, but what one what one layer of Holy Spirit on him, and he was good. You know, some other people have needed Holy Spirit primer, and then some sanding, and then some other type of stuff. But Ronald, he just needed a little bit. No, 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 no. That is not denying myself. It is the selfless perspective that says something that we, in our modern context, really have a hard time saying. In our culture, in, in, in our, our, the way we've been trained for the past 50, 60, 70 years, what I'm about to say is just, it's insulting, it's, it's, it's demeaning, uh, it, it's, um, in parts of the world, it's a hate crime. I am nothing. I am nothing. I am of no good. I can contribute nothing to my own worth and nothing to my redemption. And that, that notion of denying himself, that, 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 that perspective of, of realizing who we are is what opens the doors to discipleship. This is one of the key lessons in this text tucked right in in, in in a phrase, in a conditional phrase at the beginning of verse 24. Some people want to read that passage and then they want to look at verses 27 and 28 and spend all this time trying to figure out when Jesus is going to come back and what, 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 what is it going to look like and, and what are the signs of his return. And, and verse 24 is just screaming of something that's actually more important. Because Jesus is going to take care of his coming back. He's got that covered. Okay? We, on the other hand, I'm not so sure. You know, it's a good thing to remind ourselves that to deny yourself is also not momentary. What do I mean by that? To to, to deny yourself is not something that's, that's isolated in one event or one decision. So at one time I denied myself, but from now on I can move from this and kind of leave that aside and always look back at that decision that I denied myself. If you're anything like me, which you're probably not because I'm a really wicked guy, um, I, I feel that sometimes. I, I, we have that temptation to, to, to look upon uh, uh, um, th- this previous uh, that, that one event, that the, the, the denial of self is, 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 is just a one-time thing. And it's not a momentary thing. It's not isolated in a moment. It's a moment-by-moment type of thing. It's a daily thing. It's, it's a lifelong thing. It's a continual state. It's, it's an it's a ever-developing process of self Denial, because our temptation sometimes can be kind of it can be as you know. Well, I know Jesus now, right? I'm in. I made the team. I made the cut. Like I signed the contract. I'm under the new covenant. I got the spiritual gifts in me. So you know, let's see what I'm entitled to now. You know, hey, I'm part of the team, right? I'm good. Let's see what I deserve. Give me. And see, see, let's see what's, what's coming my way. Let me enjoy this new position I'm in. I'm in the kingdom of God after all, right? 
So, so you know, am, am I like a general or, or, or like, a, like a captain or, or, or am, am, am I some sort of like really important leader, like an officer of, of some kind in the kingdom of God? You know, he's the king. Jesus is the prince, king. Holy Spirit's the king as well. And, and I'm his son, so I'm a prince. Oh, I'm a prince. I'm royalty. Wow. I'm in the kingdom of God. So as royalty, there's certain, there's certain power I'm, I'm, I'm just inclined to just take. And, and there's, a, there's a position of privilege I am now in, which, which must be exercised. Right? Have you ever noticed that whenever a person is in a position of influence or in a position of power, we tend, and I don't say they, I say we, we tend to look for ways to exercise that power. We tend to look for ways to exhaust what's available to us. We tend to show very little restraint. Friends, let us continually pray that God would show mercy to us by reminding us that through the ministry of His Spirit, that not only were we hopeless without His help, but we remain hopeless without His rule. Deny Himself. That second part of the verse says, take up His cross and follow me. What does that mean? Take up His cross and follow me. That sounds, that sounds uncomfortable and painful and, and, um, and just awkward. It's like, I don't want to do that. As I've read this... Even this week, I've uh, Spirit of God brought two thoughts to my mind. Just, just two ideas. I wondered what the disciples, listen carefully. I wonder what the disciples understood when they heard this. When this event happened, when it was happening live. I wondered what they understood I wonder even more, after the death of Christ on the cross, after they witnessed what was done to him, years later, when the gospel writer of Matthew is penning this down, and he's coming to Matthew chapter 16, verse 24, and he writes, take up his cross and follow me. I wonder then what he was thinking. I'm pretty sure that the disciples were shocked when they first heard this. But when they read this for the first time, when Matthew shared his gospel with the other gospel writers and the other the early church, I just wonder if they weren't crushed under the weight. This isn't, this isn't you know, nebulous think tank stuff. You know, take up his cross and follow me. Yeah, that sounds, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, we'll do that, Jesus. And then you're sitting at the foot of the cross while Jesus, oh, that's what he meant? And the answer is yes, that's what he meant. So think about that. Place yourself in the the original audience's shoes. What did they hear when this was said? What did they feel when this was lived? This is sobering. 
Is it not? There's this element of, of, of this that, that just, we, we can't, we should not brush away. We, we should not just quickly go to the next verse because we don't know how to engage with that. There is something not metaphoric about that. There's something not uh, um, um, uh, analogous about this. There is something specific about this. There's something real that Jesus wants to show us. Um, When he says, I have to go, uh, back in verse uh, 21, he says, I must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. He wasn't talking metaphoric, was he? He was talking actual things were going to happen. And they did. And how was he, how did he suffer and how was he killed? By carrying a cross. So, when he tells them in verse 24, if anyone, which we already established, it's all of you if you claim to be a Christian, and that requires determination, and that requires the denial of self. So, step two is now, take up your cross and follow me. Now, is Jesus saying that you have to be crucified? No. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about that. But, but, but maybe he is. There is something, there is something deep and meaningful about that clause about that th- those few words take up his cross there's something that we as believers should marinate in what does that mean but more importantly am i living that out you'll recall that any jew or gentile in palestine you know, they knew what the crucifixion was. So the first time the disciples heard this, it's not like they were confused as to, as to you know, what reference point are you... No, they, they understood crucifixion. They understood that. And, and one of the most... Um, one of the most... The, the cruelest element, I, I think, of crucifixion... It's just, a whole, just horrible. But uh, one of the things that, 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 that just, was just exceedingly cruel or, or exceedingly just, just not right was that... Typically, the person who was going to be crucified was forced to participate in the crucifixion. Like, he was supposed to administer some of the pain on himself. He had to carry the cross. Jesus carried the cross, right? And he carried the instrument of his execution. So think about that. You're being murdered in such a way, and in and, and, and this macabre, twisted, horrible way, you, you're forced to, to take part of this Horrible spectacle. The difference, though, with what Jesus is requiring us to do here is that he's not forcing us into this sacrifice. But he's expecting it. If we're not careful, we can weaken the thrust of what Jesus is demanding here by by making this verse be kind of a generic, general principle. Um... I've said this before. Oh, we all have a cross to bear. You know, have you ever said that before? Have you ever thought that before? Have you ever heard that before? Oh, that we all have a cross to bear. And, and while that's, a, that, that's a, a good meaning idea, it, it, it undercuts some of the weight of what's required of us. Why? Well, sometimes we'll go as far as to identify that cross. So, 
we'll, we'll, we'll take this verse and we'll say, maybe the cross I'm carrying right now is, you know, I have a terrible boss. I mean, Ronald, you just don't understand. Man. This guy's a jerk. I just hate him. I mean, he just, every day is like worse than the previous day. Like he finds, I, I think, Ronald, my boss sits in his office and opens up a, a how to torture me book every day and then just picks up a new device of pain. And, and how could I annoy this specific employee as best as I can? So, Ronald, that's the cross I'm bearing. Or, or maybe it's not your boss. Maybe it's just this insufferable coworker you have. I mean, you know who I'm talking about, right? You, you've got that coworker, that person that just, for some reason, when when you when they walk into the room, this this kind of like hype pitched, dissonant sound just begins to kind of build up in your ears and, and you, you, you just, for some reason, just start grinding your teeth unexpectedly. Why am I in such... Oh, because that person came in. Or maybe it's a family member that we just have and, and can't get rid of and we would want to get rid of, but maybe we just can't. Maybe that's our cross. Sometimes we define a cross as, as a disease, or, 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 or perhaps a season of life where we're in where we're suffering uh, uh, some, some sort of illness or, or just a hardship of, of, of life. Uh, maybe someone we loved has betrayed us or hurt us deeply. All, all those things are hard. And, and in a way, all those things can be crosses we carry. But I think what Jesus has in mind here is something much more significant And something much more specific. Notice how he says, His cross. So he says, take up His cross and follow me. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up His cross and follow me. He doesn't say, take up a cross and follow me. He says, take up His cross and follow me. And follow me. You might not have a bad boss. You might not have a bad relative. If you don't, then, then you are privileged. You might not have suffered from a debilitating disease. You might not have been fired from your job ever. You might have a pretty good life. You might have no discernible uh, tension or trials or tribulations in your life. Yet, you still have to carry your cross. Even in the midst of good days in your life, that does not mean there's not a cross there for you to carry. Disciples of Jesus are not exempt from carrying a cross. It's interesting, this account in the Gospel of Luke... Luke adds a word that's so helpful, and I'm just so encouraged he added this word. He says, take up his cross daily. So think about that. This is not a seasonal event. In the same way that denying yourself is not something you do in one moment and then walk away from, carrying the cross that Jesus asks us to carry is not something that you pick up, you walk 10 years of your Christian life, you put down, and then you move away from. Now, what is he not saying? I mentioned this before, but, but Jesus doesn't want you 
to die for Him. Jesus' goal in your life is not for you to die for Him. I'll say that again, just to make sure that you guys know I'm not, this is not like a verbal typo or something. Jesus' main purpose for your life, what He wants from you, is not primarily that you give, that you die for Him. He's not seeking martyrdom from you. He's not suggesting that true discipleship only happens if you become a, a martyr. So you prove your discipleship because you, you, you literally gave your life. You died for the cause. That's not what's being taught here. What's not being taught here is if you die for the cause of Christ, then and only then are you a true disciple. Dying for Christ does not make you a disciple. Living for Him does. I'll say that again. Dying for Christ does not make you a disciple. Living for Him does. We've got to get that right. It is our daily surrendering and denying of ourselves. It is our carrying. You see how these are continual actions. And it is our following. It's our lives given over to Him that make us disciples. Not the momentary decision to give our lives for Christ. Now, why would I say that? Like, what, what, that, that just sounds so cold, Ronald, and so like, I can't believe you would say that. There's people who have died for Jesus. I, yeah, I'm not saying that they've done something wrong. What I am saying is that there are other religions that teach this. There are other religions, I'm thinking of one in, specific, in particular, that you could literally not have observed any of their tenets. You could literally have lived a life outside of their teachings, but you have that martyrdom card. I'm going to give my life, I'm going to die, and then, boom, I'm going to go into heaven, because that's what I did. That's what I'm referring to. Christianity doesn't work that way. So, what's the alternative from following me, denying, carrying your cross... What's the alternative? Is, is, are there other options? Does Jesus present other options? I think he does. Look quickly at verses 25 through 27. He says, For who, whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? You see the two options there? There's two ways to live according to Jesus. You can live for the pursuit of the world and get it, or you could live for Him, following Him, denying Him, denying yourself, and taking up your cross. And each one of them has its due reward. He says, Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with His angels in the glory of His Father, and then He will repay each person according to what He has done. I wish I had more time, so I'm going to try and share with you the important things of, of what's left. But notice how verse 25, 26, and 27 start. All your Bibles, verse 25, verse 26, and verse 27 should start the same way. What's that word? For. Okay, what does that mean? He's, he's making this, this logically tight argument. He's building on the previous verses. Verses 25 through 27 are, 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 are building up the same idea, the same point. And, and to help, uh, I was helped by reading this in this way. 
If you look at verses 25 and 26 again, I'm going to read them again. I want you to look at your Bibles, and I'm going to insert a couple of words to get the gist of what Jesus is saying. Verse 25, For whoever would save his life now will lose it in the end. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Verse 26, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world now and forfeits his life in the end? Or what shall a man give in return for his, for his soul? I, I can summarize this entire, these three verses in, in these statements. You have two options as a disciple of Jesus or as a non-disciple of Jesus. You can either give your life or you can keep it. Those are your options. There's no middle ground. Christianity is not a middle, a mushy, middle, lukewarm faith. You're either in or you're not. So Jesus says, you can either be my disciple or, or not. I mean, this choice is in some sense up to you. Or to put it another way, to use the language he uses, you can follow me, right? Verse 24, you can follow me or you can forfeit your souls. And it's fascinating how at odds the Bible is with modern worldly thinking. Verse 26 reads, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Let me read to you a quote from a book written by uh, an atheist, a world-renowned atheist, about his idea of, of, of what life is and, and, and just what the world is. He says, The universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is, at bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil and no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. As the unhappy poet A.E. Huseman put it, For nature, heartless, witless nature, will neither care nor know. DNA neither cares nor knows. DNA just is. And we dance to its music. So here's a man who believes that there's nothing but the physical universe. Here's a man who believes that all that exists is what you can see. And the implications of that is there is no spiritual realm. The implications of that is there is no life after death. This is it. Life is just the now. And, and, you know, it's actually worse than that. Because what he is saying, not only is your life all you have, but it might not mean much. He describes the world, or the version of his world, with no purpose, no evil and no good, nothing blind, pitiless indifference. Nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. In other words, there's no meaning to anything. There's no real consequence for behavior or decisions we make. If there is no purpose to life, are we not headed to despair? It's a pretty gloomy thing. There's, there's nothing of value or significance within myself. There's no purpose to anything. That just sounds hopeless. If there is no purpose to life, why should anything matter? Why should I pursue education? Why should I pursue uh, uh, altruism? Why should I pursue the betterment of society? Why should I pursue helping people with Irma? Why should we go help people with Hurricane Irma? If this is all we have. 
I'd rather keep my, hoard my resources, right? I'd rather just collect my money and we're all going to die anyway, so tough cookies for them. If there is no good and evil, as he claims, there is no, there cannot be an objective difference. I'll say that again. There cannot be, if, if, if there is no, nothing outside of this world, and there is no objective moral good to, to anchor moral goodness to, then, then there cannot be a moral distinction, an objective moral distinction between Osama bin Laden and what he did and Mother Teresa and what she did. Like he says, there's no design, there's no purpose, there's no evil and no good. It sounds harsh, doesn't it? But that's the reality that modern thinking represents. In other words, in the end, life doesn't matter. This passage teaches us the complete opposite. Not only does life matter, but it matters because there's something else that's coming that matters even more. Look at verse 27. For the Son of Man is going to come with His angels in the glory of His Father, and then He will repay each person according to what He has done. I don't have the time to unpack all of this, but, but in other words... What good is it for you to have the whole world if one day the world will be no more? You see why, why, why he, he presents the choices you could either give your life to God or forfeit your soul? You could get everything in this world, attain everything in this world, surmass everything in this world, but Christ is coming back one day and this is all going to go away. So it's like a really, really bad financial deal. You know, it's like a it's like a like a it's it's like a almost like a credit card thing where you know I'll give you a loan, you know for um, I bought a an, a Mac um, a MacBook Pro a couple of years ago and they were having this quote special um, where you signed up for their credit line and they gave you you know two years of zero percent deferred interest. So what that means is is the interest for the credit card keeps adding up. And if in two years you don't pay for the balance, at the end of the two years, you pay for all the interest that's been accruing. Okay, so that looks like a good deal. Oh my goodness, 0% interest. Man, I'm just, I'm not paying any interest on it. Well, you better pay that thing in two years because after two years, all those hundreds of dollars in interest are just going to, boom, be, be dumped on you. That's a terrible deal. So Jesus is saying it's a terrible deal for you to get all the goodies of the world and think you've achieved something when at the end it's all going to go away anyways. Lastly, let me do this quickly. Um, I just I have to touch it because it's just there. Um, verse 27, uh, verse 28, I'm sorry, says, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not um, taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. What does that mean? Is Jesus teaching something about his return? Yes. What is he teaching? Whenever we talk about the return of Christ, whenever we talk about matters of eschatology, the second coming of Christ, there's a lot of people writing a whole lot of things. Just recently we had an eclipse, right? And there's a lot of people writing about, oh, that's, a, that's some sort of sign. These, these hurricanes and all this stuff, there's a whole lot of people making claims about, right? These are... These are so... What does all that mean? Let me tell you what I think it means when it comes to the return of Christ. I have three facts about the return of Christ. So write them down. 
Actually, it might be written for you, okay? <laughs> Jesus is coming back, amen? amen? We don't know when, and we will not know when. Amen. amen. Jesus himself said, not even the Son of Man knows. So if Jesus didn't know when he was here on earth, we don't know. And three, we must be ready. There's an expectation for us to be disciples of Jesus while we're here. And that's really the thrust of this passage. Let me pray for us quickly. And uh, then we will go join the rest of our brethren in corporate worship. Father, thank you for your word. It is so rich. um, And it is so profound. and, And we barely scratch the surface of... What you are trying to tell us, Lord, but unfortunately we also barely scratch the surface of what we should be doing for you, Lord. It is a hard thing for you to tell us that we are to deny ourselves and we are to take up our crosses and we are to follow you, Father. And we confess, I confess, that we're just lacking in the ability to do that. So, Lord, through your Spirit, would you empower us? Would you give us what we need, O Lord, to be faithful to you? Would you keep us steadfast in your plan, being empowered by your, by your Spirit, always looking to the return of our Redeemer. Thank you, Father, for this day. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.